0: Welcome to the Brookings Cafeteria, the podcast about ideas and the experts who have them. I'm Fred Dews. Brexit, the departure of the United Kingdom from the European Union, is scheduled to occur on October 31st. But will it still happen? After recent events in Britain's Parliament and in the European Parliament, where do things stand now? To help us understand what's been going on and what to expect next in Brexit, I'm joined today by Amanda Sloat, the Robert Bosch Senior Fellow in the Center on the United States and Europe here at Brookings. Also on today's show, Joseph Perilla, fellow in the Metropolitan Policy Program, speaks to the issue of talent development as a component of city and regional economic development. You can follow the Brookings Podcast Network on Twitter, at Policy Podcasts, to get information about and links to all of our shows, including Dollar and Cents, the Brookings Trade Podcast, The Current, and our events podcast. For more Brexit content, check out a recent edition of The Current, featuring U.S.-Europe Center Director Tom Wright. If you want more podcast content from Brookings experts on tough global challenges, subscribe and listen to And Now the Hard Part podcast, a partnership between Brookings and foreign policy. Recent episodes include a conversation with Victoria Newland on how to heal the NATO alliance and Alina Polyakova on fighting Russian disinformation. Find it at foreignpolicy.com podcasts or on your podcast app. And now on with the interview. Amanda, welcome back to the Brookings Cafeteria. Thanks for having me. I was looking at the calendar. You were last on the show in December of 2018 talking about Brexit when we thought Brexit was going to occur in, I think it was March. Correct. And here we are in late October. In fact, today is Thursday, October 24th, releasing this on Friday, October 25th, still talking about Brexit. Three and a half years after British voters approved the referendum, why are we still talking about Brexit?
1: The short answer is because the UK Parliament has not ratified the Brexit deal. So over the last year almost since you and I spoke, Theresa May brought the deal before Parliament three times and it was defeated three times. Theresa May herself then lost power this summer and was replaced by Boris Johnson. Boris Johnson has renegotiated the deal but still has not been able to get it through Parliament.
0: That's even though Theresa May and Boris Johnson, they're prime ministers because they have a majority coalition in parliament, presumably, and yet they can't get what they want passed through their parliament.
1: Part of the clue is in your question. They do not, in fact, have majority coalitions. Theresa May started negotiations with the EU in early 2017. Right before she did that, she decided to have snap elections as a way of getting herself a larger majority. It was a disastrous result for her. She ended up with a minority government, and so she had to partner with the Democratic Unionist Party, the hardline Unionist Party from Northern Ireland, which made it a bit more difficult for her to negotiate with the EU on the specifics of the deal. So when Boris Johnson came in, He had the same situation where he was dependent on the DUP. He then made life more difficult for himself by expelling 21 members of his own party for voting against the government on a crucial Brexit deal. So part of the reason they have not been able to get their deal through is because they don't have a governing conservative majority. And the coalition partner, the Democratic Unionist Party, has had serious concerns with the Northern Ireland component of the Brexit deal.
0: I want to talk about that Northern Ireland component in more detail in a few minutes. But can you just explain the events over the last few days, even including today, about what's been going on? There's been a lot of activity.
1: There has. The first thing that happened was Boris Johnson managed to do the impossible, which was renegotiate Theresa May's deal on Brexit. He managed to get the unpopular backstop for Northern Ireland removed and replaced with a protocol for Ireland. He then brought it to Parliament for a vote in a very special sitting of Parliament on a Saturday, the first time Parliament has sat on a Saturday since the Falklands War about 37 years ago. That was on October 19th. The reason that that special Saturday sitting was required was because Parliament had previously passed legislation known as the Benn Act. That said, if Parliament had not approved a deal by October 19th, the government had to ask the EU for an extension to the October 31st deadline. Unfortunately for Boris Johnson, Parliament did not approve his deal on Saturday the 19th. Instead, they passed another act, the Letwin Amendment, which amended his deal and said, we don't trust you to complete all of this before the Brexit deadline. They were worried that people would vote on the deal in principle, not pass the implementing legislation, and that the UK could still end up crashing out on the 31st with no deal. So they forced Boris Johnson to send a letter to the European Union asking for an extended deadline. Boris Johnson then this past Tuesday could not bring this principled vote back to parliament because he'd already tried once on Saturday. So instead brought the implementing legislation, which is what the Letwin Amendment said had to pass in order for the extension request not to be made. The second thing which people had not expected to happen was that Parliament finally supported the deal. So the deal got through with a 30-vote majority. But it's important to realize that that was on the second reading of the deal, and that only opened up the process for negotiations, and there still needs to be a third reading of the deal. Parliament then took a second vote, which was on the program motion, and that's the timetable for passage of this. Boris Johnson wanted the deal to get through in three days. Parliament, by a vote of 16 said that is too fast, we are not going to support that timetable. So where we are now is waiting to see if the EU grants the extension request and what Boris Johnson does next.
0: And what's the timeline on the EU making that determination?
1: The current expectation is that the EU is going to make that decision by Friday, so the day that this podcast is being released. Right now, they are hoping not to have to convene a meeting of EU leaders. They are doing this by phone calls and by exchange of documents. If they are not able to reach a decision by Friday, then it is very possible that there will have to be a special summit next week of EU leaders to discuss this in person.
0: And do you think that the EU leaders and the European Parliament generally... Want there to be an extension or are they just going to say, you guys are supposed to be out of here by October 31st. Let's just call it a day.
1: There's generally agreement that an extension will be granted. So I think it is safe to say that Brexit is not going to happen on October 31st, either in an organized way or in a no-deal way. The thing that EU leaders are currently haggling over is what would be the timing of the extension that would be offered. In the letter that Boris Johnson sent, which was mandated by this Ben Act that Parliament had passed a couple of weeks ago, they asked for an extension deadline of January 31st, 20- 2020. So that would give the parliament about three months to take additional action. The easiest thing for the EU to do would be to grant the request on the date that the UK requested. That would keep them out of British domestic politics and they simply would be responding to what they were given. However, French President Emmanuel Macron has been pushing back on that. He's never been supportive of a long extension. And when this extension request was debated in April, he had been pushing for a much shorter extension than what German Chancellor Angela Merkel and others were requesting. So the debate that seems to be happening with EU leaders this week is whether or not they go with this January deadline or whether they go with something much shorter. Macron has been suggesting an extension of only a couple of weeks, essentially a technical extension that says, fine, if the British Parliament needs a couple of more weeks to consider the legislation fully, let's grant that to them. The problem, of course, is it's very difficult for Macron to know how much time Parliament needs to complete its scrutiny of the bill. The general expectation is that Macron is eventually going to get overruled and that the EU will offer an extension until the end of January. But that's the issue that everybody is currently waiting to hear from the EU on.
0: I was reading uh, some news reports that suggested the possibility of another parliamentary election in Britain. Could that occur?
1: Yes, absolutely. I think it is very likely that we are going to have elections in the UK very soon. The thing that Boris Johnson is going to have to decide, depending on the EU's decision, is whether or not he tries to push through this implementing legislation for the Brexit deal and then move to elections or or does he hold elections first hope that he gets a bigger majority and then bring the bill back trying to get it through more easily because he has more conservative members on the bench that's of course a gamble if he doesn't end up winning the election
0: and also saw the election if it's held could be right around christmas time which is obviously a very important period in british culture
1: Yes, absolutely. So the way the British election rules work is that you need 25 working days or essentially five weeks to prepare for an election. So depending on when the EU makes its decision, depending on what Boris Johnson decides, we could be looking at an election in early to mid-December, which not only coincides with a lot of religious holidays, but also tends to be a very dark and unpleasant time for people to be marching around, campaigning and then going to polling stations.
0: Now, if the EU does grant an extension, that would be the second or third extension, could they say, okay, this is it, we officially say no more extensions and this is the deadline? Is that possible?
1: So this would be the third extension. The initial deadline was supposed to be in March. That was then pushed to May or April, depending on how things played out. In April, the EU gave the UK its second extension up until October 31st. And so if this one goes until January, this would, in fact, be the third extension. One thing that the EU was worried about is if they grant this extension until the end of January and the UK then goes to elections in early December, it then is going to take a little while for the government to get up and running. If it is not a conservative government again, but it is a labor or an opposition government, they're going to want to try and renegotiate the Brexit deal. And so there is also concern in Brussels that they don't want the UK to come back in January and ask for yet another extension. At the same time, People in the EU do not want to be responsible for the UK crashing out with no deal. And so I think they have been willing to entertain some of these extension requests to ensure that there is not no deal. But there certainly is great fatigue within the EU about how long this debate is dragging on. Brexhaustion, exhaustion, many people are calling it.
0: I also read a news report this week that Joe Swinson, who's the leader of the Liberal Democrats in the UK was pushing for a second referendum, a people's vote, I think they're calling it. Is that even a possibility?
1: So there continues to be a lot of discussion about a second referendum. The question is how you would get there. And there's a couple of different possibilities. One is this withdrawal agreement bill that Boris Johnson has brought before Parliament. As I mentioned, Parliament took a vote at the second reading of the bill. There now needs to be a process of scrutiny of the bill, and there's the possibility to amend the bill. One of the things that people are wanting to amend is to include a provision for a second referendum. So that is the legislative option that some proponents of a second referendum are trying to use. This, of course, would be of concern to Boris Johnson that he could perhaps get his bill through parliament, but it would come with this clause requiring a second referendum. The second possibility is going to be through the general elections. If we end up moving to elections before there is further consideration of this withdrawal agreement bill, it will depend on what the outcome of the elections are. The conservative government certainly is not going to campaign for a second referendum. Labor's position has been a bit ambiguous on this because Jeremy Corbyn, the leader of the Labor Party, essentially supports Brexit. His position is, elect me as prime minister, I will negotiate a better Brexit deal. And then we will have a second referendum on whether you want my deal or whether you want to leave. Joe Swinson, as you mentioned, of the Liberal Democratic Party, has a position that says if you vote for the Lib Dems in the election, we will just make Brexit stop entirely. We won't have a second referendum. We will revoke our notification of wanting to leave, and we will make this entire Brexit process stop. Some people have argued that's undemocratic because it would overrule the results of the referendum. She would argue that it is Democratic because you would be voting for her position knowingly going into government. The reality is that the Liberal Democrats are not going to get a sufficient number of seats to form a government themselves. They would need to go into coalition with the Labor Party, who is not going to support an immediate revocation. So essentially it's a bit of an election ploy by the Lib Dems, but they are continuing to advocate for this change to the legislation.
0: I want to stick on a political question just for a few more minutes before we go to Northern Ireland. And that has to do with Boris Johnson's own political standing. I think it was in September that he prorogued Parliament. The UK Supreme Court said he wasn't actually able to do that. How does he continue to have support as Conservative Party leader and prime minister? And another question I think that came up is can he be somehow impeached, I think to use an American term, or removed from power? Or is it all about the election?
1: So those are all very excellent questions. So taking them in turn, on the prorogation, that was a controversy a couple of weeks ago where Boris Johnson decided to prorogue parliament, which is a fancy word for suspend parliament. If you think about the American system, essentially every two years we have elections and that resets things in Congress. So legislation that was introduced that doesn't pass by the end of that term goes away and would need to be reintroduced in the next session of Congress. When they come back, the U.K.'s parliamentary system does not have that. And so what you need to do periodically, often once a year, is prorogue parliament for a short period of time. You close parliament. Existing legislation goes away. The queen comes in and makes a speech outlining her government's policy agenda, similar to the State of the Union address in Washington and then Parliament ends up voting on that and moving forward. Boris Johnson took the unusual step of trying to prorogue Parliament for five weeks, which many saw as being very politically motivated to stop Parliament from taking steps to stop a no-deal Brexit. Yet Parliament managed to pass the Ben Act that we were talking about earlier, forcing the government to ask for this extension to the EU. So they did not essentially achieve the aims in proroguing Parliament. But you're right that the Supreme Court in the UK ruled that Boris Johnson had unlawfully advised the Queen to suspend Parliament. In most cases, this would be enough to get rid of the prime minister, but he has managed to soldier on. About a week ago, Parliament was prorogued for a very short period of time. The Queen came and delivered a speech setting out Boris Johnson's agenda, which he wanted to do since he's now replaced Theresa May and has his own agenda. Today, Thursday, the British Parliament is expected to be voting on the Queen's speech, to be voting on the legislative agenda that was laid out by Boris Johnson. And there's questions about whether or not Parliament is going to support this legislative agenda in part because they don't have the legislative majority that we were talking about in the past. Now, normally, if a Parliament votes down a government speech, that is essentially seen as a vote of no confidence in the government, which could end up bringing the government down. People are not going to want to do that while all of these Brexit debates are playing out. We've also had the very unusual situation where Boris Johnson has essentially been goading Jeremy Corbyn and the opposition into calling a vote of no confidence in him because that would be one way to trigger early elections. But the opposition has not wanted to do that because they want to guarantee that there's not a no-deal Brexit before they move to elections. So yes, there would be a mechanism to bring down the government with this vote of no confidence, but opposition parties have been resisting that while these Brexit debates play out.
0: Well, let's turn to Northern Ireland now. It's been a sticking point in all kinds of negotiations over the last year or so. And you just recently testified to a House Foreign Affairs subcommittee on the issues regarding Northern Ireland. Can you first remind listeners what the backstop issue was that you referenced earlier?
1: So the biggest challenge for getting a Brexit deal completed concerns the handling of the border in Northern Ireland. So once the UK leaves the European Union, it in theory would leave the customs union and the single market. Northern Ireland will remain part of the UK, but it shares a border with the Republic of Ireland, which is an EU member state and will stay in the EU. And so the challenge with handling the border is how you ensure that any goods that are crossed. That border from Northern Ireland into Ireland comply with EU health and safety and other regulations. At the same time, because of the unique situation in Northern Ireland, the legacy of the conflict, there is a desire to avoid putting any physical infrastructure on the border, which would be very practically challenging for people, but also quite psychologically devastating since one of the main benefits of the Good Friday Agreement had been removing a lot of these checkpoints that were physically divided. The island.
0: And the Good Friday Agreement was the agreement brokered in the 1990s amongst the factions that ended what we call the Troubles.
1: Absolutely. That was signed in April 1998 and it did a number of things. It ended up reducing the British military presence. It got paramilitary groups to decommission their weapons. It led to the removal of checkpoints on the border. It established an assembly in Northern Ireland which enabled power sharing between the two communities. And it really put to rest a lot of these identity questions because nationalists were able to feel so Secure in that they had a much greater say in policing and governance arrangements. And the unionist community felt confident in the sense that the violence was ending and that there was not going to be a change in the constitutional status unless there was a referendum. And so, unfortunately, what's happened with Brexit is it's led to a resurgence of identity politics, it has brought these constitutional questions back back to the fore. And it has raised a lot of concern about what's going to end up happening with the border as a result of Brexit.
0: So what are the new or the different policy ideas that are being talked about instead of a backstop for Northern Ireland?
1: So, first to remind listeners what the backstop was, the EU said, hopefully we in the UK can address the border in discussions about what our future relationship looks like during the transition period. So, the expectation is that once the UK leaves the EU, there will be a transition period of 15 months, two years, depending what they decide, during which time the UK will remain part of the EU rules and structures but will not have a say. And so that will give people time to transition to the new arrangements and it will also let the UK and the EU decide what their future relationship looks like. What the EU said is if we are not able to reach that agreement or if we don't come up with mechanisms to address the border, then we're going to have this backstop. And the backstop said that all of the UK would remain in a customs union with the European Union and that additional single market provisions would apply on good and agriculture products crossing the border in Northern Ireland. This was all an effort to try and minimize the need for customs checks on the border in Northern Ireland the initial suggestion had been that this backstop apply only to Northern Ireland itself. But the DUP, who was propping up May's government, did not want Northern Ireland to be treated differently from the rest of the UK. And so the backstop was expanded to apply to the entire UK. This created problems for hardline Brexiteers who feared that they would get trapped in the EU customs union indefinitely and not be able to negotiate free trade agreements with countries like the United States and others. So what we have now that Boris renegotiated with the European Union is that the backstop was removed completely, so the insurance policy is gone. Instead, what we have is a mechanism, a protocol for Northern Ireland that would take effect as soon as the transition period ended. And it says several things. One, the entire UK will leave the EU Customs Union. However, Northern Ireland will remain aligned with EU rules on customs union and on value-added tax. So you have a fairly complicated situation where, in regulatory terms, Northern Ireland is going to follow a limited number of EU single market provisions. Things like goods and agriculture, there simply is no way around that. There has to be some regulatory alignment there. The complicated thing to handle is on customs, and it is in some ways similar to what the Northern Ireland-only version of the backstop had been, which is that Northern Ireland remains in the EU customs area, but is going to have to follow provisions of the EU customs area itself. And so what that means is rather than checking goods on the Irish border in a north-south sense, you will now check goods instead in an east-west sense in the Irish Sea. So goods that are moving from Great Britain to Northern Ireland will have to be checked at that point instead.
0: That sounds like an administrative and regulatory challenge, to say the least.
1: Absolutely. And that's certainly something that people are very concerned about. So goods moving from Great Britain to Northern Ireland wouldn't be subject to a customs tariff unless they are seen as at risk of continuing to the EU. So Great Britain, of course, can ship things to Northern Ireland. If they stay in Northern Ireland, that's fine. If there's a risk that things are going to move from Northern Ireland down to the Republic of Ireland, then they would have to be checked and the EU customs would have to be applied. And so then you get into a complicated situation where the seller of the goods would potentially have to apply for or a rebate or get a rebate value-added tax was the final sticking point in all of this. Northern Ireland will remain in the UK's VAT area, but aligned with EU VAT laws. And so it says that the UK could apply VAT exemptions and reduced rates in Northern Ireland, but they can't be lower than the rates in Ireland itself. One of the main differences between this protocol and the Northern Ireland-only backstop is the idea of consent. This was one of the things that the Democratic Unionist Party had been quite concerned about. And they said, if Northern Ireland is going to be treated differently from the rest of the UK, we need to ensure that there is consent from the local people there there had been lots of discussions about how you best do this, especially given that the Northern Ireland Assembly, which would be the body to give this consent, has been suspended since January of 2017. So we are soon going to be approaching the three-year mark of having no local governance in Northern Ireland. And so what this consent mechanism says is that four years after the transition period, the Northern Ireland Assembly will vote on whether or not this protocol should continue. If the vote passes by a simple majority, then these provisions will continue for another four years. The DUP is concerned about this because it doesn't necessarily give them a blocking majority, and it introduces the idea of majority voting into a system that has tried to rely on cross-community support. The mechanism then says if the deal does have cross-community support, so majorities from unionist and nationalist communities, then the provisions would apply for eight more years. If the Assembly votes against these protocols four years after the transition, then they would lose force after two years, and a joint committee would have to try and come up with new mechanisms to handle the Irish border.
0: Sounds massively complicated.
1: (laughs) Clear as mud. Clear as mud.
0: Let's move on to a final topic here. And that's what role, if any, has the Trump administration played in negotiations between the UK and the EU? And I'm struck again by your reference to the Good Friday Peace Accords, because I know the United States government was essential in those negotiations back then. Does the Trump administration have a role? Should it even have a role?
1: The Trump administration has not been playing an active role on the ground in Northern Ireland. The United States for decades has had a bipartisan approach to peace in Northern Ireland, dating back to Ronald Reagan and Jimmy Carter expressing support for peace talks, pledging financial support from the United States in support of that. We then had a long period where the U.S. had envoys to help negotiate peace in Northern Ireland. George Mitchell, of course, helped negotiate the Good Friday. Agreement. Richard Haass was involved in getting the IRA to decommission weapons. Gary Hart played that role during the Obama administration. So there has been a long history of American involvement. The Trump administration decided not to have an envoy for Northern Ireland. They decided as part of Tillerson's effort to reduce the number of envoys generally. That this role was going to be done by the State Department itself. It would be a way of saving money. They didn't see the necessity of it with the Assembly there. And so the U.S. has not been involved on the ground in playing an honest broker role like it has in the past. You could envision in an administration of a different nature that the U.S. would be involved in some sort of shuttle diplomacy between the British government, the Irish government, the political parties on the ground, either to try and get the Assembly itself stood up, which is a problem that it has not sat for so long or to try and find some sort of arrangement for the border in Northern Ireland that would end up being a solution that would work for everybody. Beyond benign neglect, I would argue that the Trump administration has actually played a damaging role in these discussions. It is no surprise that President Trump sees the EU as what he has described as an economic foe. He has described Brexit as a great thing. And so he essentially has been cheerleading extremists in the UK that are advocating a no-deal Brexit Donald Trump has been arguing that the U.K. should just leave the European Union and then move quickly to have negotiations with the United States on a free trade agreement. The problem with that approach is it would end up being very damaging for the situation with the border in Northern Ireland if it was to leave without a deal. There has been some pushback on this from Congress. House Speaker Nancy Pelosi went with the delegation in the spring to London, Dublin, and Belfast and said very clearly that the U.S. Congress, which is responsible for rat- ratifying any bilateral trade agreement would not support an agreement that harmed the Northern Ireland peace process. And so this is a message that she, the chair of the Ways and Means Committee and others have been making very clear that if the UK does leave without a deal, if they have an arrangement that hurts Northern Ireland, it is going to make it very difficult, if not impossible, to get a bilateral free trade agreement with the US approved by Congress.
0: Well, Amanda, I want to thank you very much for walking us through this deep dive into the issues around Brexit. I know it's a fast-moving story, so I appreciate your time today.
1: Absolutely. And I fear we could be having a similar conversation months from now. It's important to remember that we really are only at the end of the beginning. Right now, we are trying to finalize the divorce settlement. And even if the UK Parliament eventually ratifies the agreement, it then needs to be ratified by the European Parliament. At that point, we move into the transition period and the two sides then need to decide what their future relationship looks like. Is it a free trade agreement? Is it a customs union? So many questions that there. So even if this is wrapped up in the next couple of months, we are sadly far from the end of these Brexit discussions.
0: All right, then we'll talk again in a few months. Thank you. Excellent. Thank you. You can learn more about Brexit on our website, brookings.edu. And now here's Metro Lens with Joseph Perilla, fellow in the Metropolitan Policy Program.
2: Hi, this is Joseph Perella, fellow here at the Brookings Metropolitan Policy Program. In a recent book, the Harvard economist William Kerr argued that talent is the world's most precious resource. In the United States, that is undoubtedly true. The collective knowledge and capabilities of the U.S. workforce is worth an estimated $240 trillion. That is four times more valuable than the country's physical capital stock and 10 times more valuable than all the urban land in the United States. So given this relative value, It is not surprising that an overwhelming body of evidence concludes that economies grow when they develop and deploy their people in ways that maximize their productive potential. So this is why the nation invests nearly $1 trillion per year in education. But even with this investment, talent development pathways in the United States are too unclear and unequal, which limits the supply of prepared workers. And at the same time, private sector hiring and training norms have shifted in ways that undermine a more inclusive form of talent development. Both of these issues impact the ability of cities and states to grow and prosper. Yet local and state economic development policy is still struggling to address these labor market challenges. Historically, the job of economic development was simply to focus on, well, jobs, and leave workforce preparation to the education and training system. The reality today is that workforce capabilities are paramount to core economic development interests. Talent matters to business attraction. High-profile economic development competitions such as Amazon's second headquarters came down to talent. And talent matters to business expansion, too. In one survey, four in ten mid-sized businesses said they could create more jobs if they had workers to fill them. In a recent report, Sifan Liu and I argue that economic development organizations need to evolve to focus more on these types of talent development issues. But how they do that is very important. Their value proposition should focus on their distinct capabilities. Things like strong economic research, financial resources, and the ability to coordinate and recruit businesses to broader regional training efforts. So let's take financial resources as an example. Financial resources refers to the estimated $50 billion in economic development incentives that local and state governments provide to businesses each year. Yet only about 2% of these incentives, or about $1 billion per year, go to job training. This is a striking disconnect for two reasons. First, workforce drives business site selection decisions. 95% of executives rate the availability of skilled labor as either very important or important in their site selection factors. And then second, the return on investment from customized job training incentives, as measured by job creation, is about 10 times higher than that of traditional tax incentives. And so our recommendation is that state governments recalibrate their incentive programs to focus more on job training. In a recently released book, economist Tim Bartik offers a useful scenario in which localities and states cut their incentive spending in half to about $25 billion per year but increase the share of customized job training incentives to about 20% of total incentive spending, infusing about $4 billion in training resources into the economy each year. And that infusion would nearly equal the entire federal government's annual spend on job training. This is but one area in which economic development could evolve. The report is filled with many more arguments and practical examples of how economic development organizations can practically utilize their research, resources, and relationships to support talent development and deployment. You can find that report on our website at brookings.edu.
0: The Brookings Cafeteria Podcast is the product of an amazing team of colleagues, starting with audio engineer Gaston Reveredo and producer Chris McKenna. Bill Feynman, director of the Brookings Institution Press, does the book interviews, and Lizette Baylor and Eric Abalahan provide design and web support. Our intern this fall is Eowyn Fain. Finally, my thanks to Camila Ramirez and Emily Horn for their guidance and support. The Brookings Cafeteria is brought to you by the Brookings Podcast Network,